Good morning. My name is Craig Johnson. It's good to be here with you this morning to be able to share God's word with you. We're in the midst of a series entitled True or False. We're in the third week of the series and we're looking at different statements, whether they be in scripture or not, statements that might be common to us or common to people around us and looking at them to see whether they're actually true or not. And today's statement is the Christian life is easy. And it was funny this week, so I was visiting one of our elderly uh, members here at Bethel. She's in a care facility, uh, close to going home to be with the Lord. And we were talking and I was sharing with her about this series. And I told her what the series was and I, I told her the, the title and she immediately laughed. She laughed because she's lived 80, 90 years and she understands that no, the Christian life is not easy. It's, it's difficult, at times trying, but God is good in it. So if you need a copy of scripture to use, we'll be going through a number of different passages. Please raise up your hand. Our ushers are coming down to hand those out. And we're glad that you're here, whether you're here in person, uh, watching online, or in kindred. Why is the Christian life particularly hard? I've been thinking about that the last few weeks. And obviously the first answer to that is, is sin. Sin has made this world broken and has made us broken as human beings. And so the very difficulty of living in a world filled with sin causes it to be difficult. But I think in some ways it's harder for us as believers because as followers of Jesus, people who know him, who know the hope that we have, who can sing about how marvelous and great his love is for us. We see what's before us, we see what God can do, what he has for us in heaven, and we see the brokenness in this world and we, we know this is not the way that it should be because we know that there's something better. And sometimes that's easier for us and sometimes that makes it harder for us, especially as we think about other people who need the Lord and we know the answer. And God wants us to be like one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Not that we arrive, not that we know it all, but that God wants to use us in other people's lives to find hope in him. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and left untried. But if we leave it untried, if those who don't know Christ leave it untried, you will lose hope in this life and in this world. So the Christian life isn't easy, but God has purpose in the difficulty. God has a plan in the difficulty. He's doing 10,000 things and every one thing that he does. And as Christians, we don't often live by the means that God gives us so that we can be strong in the difficulties so that we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as scripture says. Because we deal with sin, our own sin, the world's sins, we deal with sorrows as well that make the life difficult. But if we aren't drawing near to Christ in the means that we're gonna look at this morning, it makes it even more difficult for us as believers. So the first point I wanna think about is in Romans 6, 17. If you wanna turn there for us, we're gonna look at a number of different verses. Romans 6, 17, the Christian life requires all of me. The Christian life requires all of me. And let me read the verse before that 
and the verse after that as you're looking at it on the screen. Paul writes this, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Then verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. See, Satan wants to attack us in certain ways, mind, heart, or will. And he wants us as Christians to be defeated, unbalanced people, always wondering what's going on, what he's doing, not depending on God. And this passage talks about the three aspects of that, but scripture also shows us Satan's attack in those ways. Back in the very beginning, page three or four of your Bible, Genesis chapter three, it said about Eve and about Adam, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. So she thought about it, she desired it, and she acted. Satan attacked her in those ways and so sin entered the world. And so Satan challenges us and discourages us and defeats us through our mind, through our heart, and through our will. 1 John 2, 15 through 16 talks about this as well. John says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of what, has, what one has and does is not from God, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, uh, but those who follow God, who trust in him, will last forever. So sometimes we work for the wrong master. We think about those loves in this world, we, we fixate on them in our minds, and our hearts, we act towards them instead of following God and using the means that he gives us. So look, look at those three parts, mind, heart, and will. In fact, this verse talks about that. Verse talks about, first of all, at the end of the verse, the, the standard of teaching or what God has, has taught us that will change us or renew us. If you still have your Bible open, turn a few chapters from Romans 6 to Romans 12. And Paul talks about this here, about renewing our mind. Paul says in Romans 12, verses one and two, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And what Paul is talking about here in, in chapter 12, he's also talking about in chapter six, Often we let ourselves be conformed to the pattern of this world. We think like the world thinks. And then we do like the world does because that's natural for us because of our sin nature without Jesus, without the Spirit working in us. And so he's saying don't be conformed any longer. Don't any longer be slaves to sin but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's interesting how he says it there in Romans chapter six. He talks about the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
And what we'd often think, well, when we learn something, like when I learned two plus two is four, or learned math, all those different things, I studied them, I took those in, and I understood them. But he's not speaking of it in that way. He's saying, Paul wants to make clear that becoming a Christian means to be placed under the authority of the teaching. We don't take his word into us, he takes us into his word. We come in under authority to it, and he literally transforms us. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It works actively in, inside of us. It changes us as we give it authority in our lives, as we give authority to God through his word, as we submit to it. And so God changes our thinking patterns. And I'm sure all of you are like me, and in some way or another you have a, a thinking pattern that you naturally go to when you're discouraged, when you're defeated, when things aren't going well, and you respond in that natural way because God is still working on you to change that thinking pattern. It might be anxiety, it might be anger, it might be a depression, it might be any number of things, uh, but you allow yourself to go into that way of thinking because you're conforming to what you've learned apart from Christ. And God wants to change that in you. He wants to renew you so that you think as he thinks, so that you can fight against Satan's lies and so that you can tell yourself the truth. And so God wants to know that. He wants us to have an intimate knowing of him so intimately that we trust him and that we can say like Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, let him who boasts of this that he understands and knows me. So thinking, first of all, our mind or our thinking patterns need to be changed. Secondly, our, our heart. Paul mentions obedient from the heart in this passage. And over in 2 Timothy 3, 4 through 5, he talks about that. And he says in that passage that people in those last days will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And he says have, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with those people. So when we love self, we don't have God's power working in us, but when we love God, we have his power working in us. So the Christian life isn't just the life of the mind, it's the life of the heart. It's our passions, it's our desires. And I wanna look at a particular place in just a second that talks about that, but let's turn over and look at 1 Peter 1.8 that really describes that well. I love this verse, 1 Peter 1, verse eight. Peter's opening up his, his first letter. And he says this, he talks about our loves. <clears throat> he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And so God not only wants our mind and our thinking to be changed, but our, our loves and our desires to be changed. And, and Peter is saying to these people who weren't living when Christ was alive, who weren't his followers, he's saying to them, hey, you haven't seen Jesus like I have, but you still love him. You don't see him now because he went to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, 
but Jesus gives you joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. And that changes your heart so that you want the things that God wants. And then as we look at it in just a couple minutes, you'll want to do the things that God wants you to do. And so what he wants for us, what God wants for us is not to be satisfied with the lesser things of this world, but to be satisfied with all that he is for us in Christ. Seeing Rich and Ruth up front, I remember uh, when I was 20, went on a short-term mission trip for the summer to South Africa. And I don't think at that time I'd ever been to the ocean before. We were inland in the, in the Transkei. Uh, there was no ocean around us, but a couple times we got to go to the Indian Ocean, to the wild coast. And it was just incredible to see. Growing up in Minnesota, I loved the lakes. I loved being on the lakes, but comparing a lake to the ocean, there's just, there's just no comparison. And to see the vastness and the, and the power and, and the beauty of that, I wasn't satisfied anymore with, with lesser things, and that's what God wants for us as well. He doesn't want us to be satisfied with figurative ponds in our neighborhood when he offers us the vastness and the greatness and how marvelous he is for us in Christ. And he wants our hearts to be changed and transformed so we love him, so we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing because we know him. So mind and heart and thirdly, will. Satan works on our will as well to cause us to do the things that he wants us to do rather than what Christ wants us to do. In Psalm 51, uh, Psalm 51 is David's confession after his sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan confronts him, and David uh, talks about that, talks about God's mercy. And he says in verse 12 of, of Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation, so he's connecting joy here with living the Christian life, and uphold me with a willing spirit. So not only does he want us to be changed in our thinking and have joy in him, but have a willing spirit so that we do what he wants us to do. He wants us to renew our minds, wants to renew our minds and hearts, so we act differently. So our inclinations and our actions are to do what he wants us to do rather than what we want to do. David talks about it as well in, in Psalm 37 verses three and four. He says this here, trust in the Lord, so our, our thinking, trust in the Lord and do good, our actions. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, find your joy in him, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So all three of them there in these two verses. Trust him, have your heart delighting in him, and do what he wants. He will give you the desires of your heart. He will give you the motivation and desire to do what he wants you to do. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, it's only the people who have understood the truth who want to do it. If we haven't understood the truth, we won't want to do it. And what this, what this passage is saying here, what these three aspects are saying is, you can't just have one or two. We have to be strong in the Lord in all three of these areas. So if we're just thinking about Christ and doing, we're like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. The older brother stayed home. He worked, worked, worked because he wanted to have a party just like 
the younger son, the prodigal, did. So he was just living a life of legalism because his heart wasn't in it. He didn't love the Lord. He knew things about his father, and he did things to please him, but not out of the right motivation. So mind and will just doesn't work. Heart and will doesn't work either. That's, that's the way that we're thinking in this world. Whatever I, I feel, that's what I should do. And there's no truth involved in that. It's, we're just following our hearts, you do you, I'll do me. Uh, but that doesn't honor God because we're not thinking as he wants us to do. We think just our hearts and wills are good enough. We need to have all three of these working together. Because once we were slaves to sin, as Romans 6.17 says, but we become obedient in our will from our hearts to the standard of teaching that we've learned that has been committed to us that we've fallen under. So don't follow the wrong master. Think about what God requires of us. He requires all of us, our full energy in following him. And we can only do this by faith. Because sometimes we try to work in our own power, don't we? Turn with me to Mark chapter nine. We'll look at Mark chapter nine first before we look at the verses that we have there. Because in Mark chapter nine, there's, there's an instructive story, an event uh, that Jesus tells us about. Uh, really a, a practical example of living by faith. In Mark chapter nine, verse 14, there's a story of a, a boy who is demon possessed. And his, his father is beside himself. And I think this is just a, one great example of the Christian life being difficult. Those of you who have, are parents, part of some of your greatest sorrows as well as some of your greatest joys have to do with your children, don't they? And you can understand this man here. <clears throat> this man talks about his son. And Jesus came to the disciples because Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, so the man came to the disciples first, and the man asked the disciples to heal him, to cast out the demon, and they couldn't. So then Jesus came up, and Jesus had the man brought before him. It says in verse 20 of Mark 9, and they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Can you, can you imagine the pain of that father dealing with this with your son from, from childhood, not knowing what to do, trying many different things without success? And you hear about Jesus. You hear about this man who's been healing people and casting out demons and performing miracles. And you think, maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus can do something here. Verse 22. The man continues to say, as it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now listen to the father's answer here. And I bet it'll resonate with you as you think about your faith in God. Immediately the father of the child cried out, and, that's, and he's not just saying something really loud, he's crying out, he's yelling, he's wailing with tears because this has been going on probably 12, 13, 14 years, and he's beside himself and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And I resonated with that when I heard that. Don't you as well? Because when we're living the life of faith and when things are difficult, on one hand, we do believe. We know who God is. We know that he is able. But we wonder whether he's going to do something, and sometimes even in the back of our mind, we wonder, can he really do it? Can he really do what we think he should do? And so we struggle with this life of faith, and we struggle with this obedience of faith. Paul talks about this in Romans, in the very first chapter and the very last chapter. He says he's an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith. Those are really two interesting words that he puts together here. He wants us to obey, but he wants us to obey not on our own power, obey by trusting. And that's how he describes the gospel. That's how he describes his ministry, to bring about the obedience of faith. And that's what he wants to happen in our lives. And Hebrews talks about it, especially Hebrews chapter 11. Let's turn over to Hebrews and read a few verses leading up to chapter 11 so we can see what the author of Hebrews is talking about. And I don't think I mentioned this verse earlier, but in Hebrews 10, verse 36, or let's start with verse 35. The author of Hebrews says this, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. Now I read that verse a couple weeks ago and I thought, Lord, thank you very much, but I don't need any more endurance. I'm just fine just where I am, because endurance, spiritual endurance requires trials, testing, tribulation, whatever it might be, and I'm, I'm pretty good right now. I've got my, my endurance level is really high here. I could, I could use some other things, but endurance, no, that's, that's, that's fine for, with me. But he says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So he's talking about all three aspects again, believing, feeling, and thinking. And he's saying, hey, don't be those who shrink back and are destroyed. Be those who have faith and preserve their souls. So what is faith? Hebrews 11, verse one, and then verse six. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse six, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith by the very nature of the world word is trusting in something that you can't see, that you can't feel, but you have convictions about it in your mind. God has showed himself faithful in the past and you trust that he's gonna show himself faithful in the future. And you trust so much that you earnestly seek after him in prayer, in reading his word, in confidence that he's gonna work. Even if you're like Abraham, Abraham at the age of 75 was promised a son. 25 years later, Abraham's 100 years old, finally that promise is fulfilled. 
And you can see those examples all through Hebrews chapter 11. And I encourage you this afternoon to read through Hebrews 11, to see all the examples of faith that are, are listed here, to see those who have gone before us who have trusted God by faith. And God has rewarded them because they've earnestly seeked him, earnestly sought him. So I encourage you as you think about it, think about not working in your own power, but as you live the Christian life, live it by faith, trusting that God will work, even though it might seem like he's not going to. In our last verse, Galatians 6, verse 2, sometimes we try to go it alone, but the Christian life can only be done with each other. Now, this isn't the only context, but he starts in verse one, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Sometimes the burdens that we help others bear are sin. Sometimes the burdens we help others bear are sorrows. But what we do is this word is talking about coming alongside so closely to someone else, it's as if you are actually in their shoes, helping them to carry the burden that they're trying to carry alone. And the picture that comes to my mind is, is the picture of the athlete on the field, on the track, wherever he is, injured, foot, ankle, leg, whatever, the trainer comes out and the athlete puts his arm over the trainer's shoulder, and the trainer comes alongside and puts his arm around the athlete's waist, and he helps the athlete to make it off the field. He's helping the athlete to bear the burden of his weight and his injury. He comes alongside of him. He's almost in his shoes, helping him to carry that burden. That's what God calls us to do. He calls us as Christians to put our strength with another person's weakness, because they're having difficulty bearing that burden, to come alongside them and to lighten their load. And we need to do that physically, emotionally, spiritually, to carry that burden with another person. And I'm continually amazed how Bethel Church does that. I think about our care chaplains. We have three care chaplains here at Bethel who are, are constantly visiting people who are hospitalized in care facilities, delivering meals. We have Stephen ministers. I don't know how many. I know we have more than 50 Stephen ministers here who meet individually with one person each week just to help them bear their burdens, to carry their burdens. Because we as a, a pastoral staff, as a ministry team, we could never meet all those burden-bearing needs in this church. But as you look at this passage, the passage doesn't say pastors, church leaders, paid staff, volunteer staff, bear one another's burdens. It just says bear one another's burdens. The call is for each one of us to practice this one another with other people, to care for others as Christ has cared for us, as we'll look at in a minute. And I just want to give you a little pastoral care advice as I've learned over 30, 35 years of ministry. And I put four letters here. First of all, A, ask. When you see someone in need, ask them how they're doing, what's going on. L, listen. Listen to what they're saying to you. Listen to what their needs are. 
And then thirdly, pray. Don't just say you're gonna pray for someone, but pray for them. But fourthly, the last day, ask again. And I think this is what we miss. This is when we don't bear one another's burdens. Sometimes we're like uh, driving through at Burger King. We order up a prayer request, we drive away, and we don't think about it after we've prayed. But if we really want to come alongside someone, if we really want to bear that burden with them, we'll, we'll live it with them. We'll come alongside them. We'll visit them. We'll give them a call. Send them a note later saying that, hey, I'm still praying for you. How are things going? We, we follow up with that person. We can't do it with everybody. But God puts certain people in our paths, whether they be family members, whether they be neighbors or friends, people we work with, God puts certain people in our paths and he brings us into a close relationship with them, a relationship of trust, and he uses us to bear those burdens that that other person is carrying. And God calls us to do that because that fulfills the law of Christ. Now I didn't look through all the one another's in the, in the New Testament, but I think this is the only one that says something so specific like that. Do this because it fulfills the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Well, the law of Christ is, is loving one another. Jesus is the ultimate burden bearer. He has borne our sins on the cross, something that we could never bear alone, something that we deserved the wrath of God for, and he has borne those burdens for us. And he has lived in this world to empathize and sympathize with us. And now, he's ascended to heaven, he's at the right hand of the Father, and he is praying for us. This amazes me to think about. Two people of the Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit, are praying to us, to the third person of the Trinity. So every single person of the Trinity is involved in praying for us and bearing our burdens, and he calls us to be the conduits of his grace to be used by him to bear others' burdens as well. And so we fulfill the law of Christ and God uses us in ways that we couldn't even imagine, but that he's designed just for us to bring us together and bind us together as the body of Christ. So is, is the Christian life easy? No, it's not easy. But our, our one thing kind of answers the question and Paul's kind of written it this way. Romans 8, 37, he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We conquer only through him. Uh, so I pray for you that you would grow in your trust in him, that you'd grow in strength and mind, heart and will, and I pray that you'd be a brother and sister in Christ to others here in our church body and outside our body to bear one another's burdens so that we fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. It's rich and it's true and it provides for our needs according to your glorious riches. Lord, help us to trust you today. I don't know what's before us today, Lord, and I don't know what each person here came uh, to this worship service with or is watching it thinking about, but you do, and that's what's so marvelous and so amazing. So we can trust you, Father, we can trust your promises because you are faithful, 
And so your faithfulness to us today, Lord, as we trust you, we pray in your name. Amen.